At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to another exciting episode or debate of Modern Day Debate. Tonight, our topic is evolution on trial. We got a 2v2 tonight, and we're going to start with our skeptic side. I believe Sal has volunteered to go first. Um, so, Sal, the floor is all yours. Thank you. Is uh, Are my slides up? Screen shared. I'd like to thank the hosts and moderators and participants in this discussion. I'm a, a molecular biophysics researcher, and I've recently been accepted into a doctoral program in biomolecular engineering. I started off as an engineer most of my career, and I went off to study biology at this school. And one of the professors at my school was Dr. Cy Gart, who is on the opposing side. He was a professor there. It was a wonderful school, and I was a student there. I am so deeply honored to share uh, this discussion with him. Uh, we probably have uh, uh, not complete polar opposites, but we're certainly on opposite sides of this discussion. I would like to uh, also mention he's a brother in Christ, and it means something to me. Uh, as I'm also a Christian, he has this book that uh, gives his journey from atheism to faith, and I highly recommend his book. So um, part of this discussion really is aimed at theistic evolutionists. I used to be a theistic evolutionist. So uh, with that aside, what do I consider great scientific theories? Here are the examples. These fundamental laws of nature are scientific theories. And um, I think by comparison, you know, these are the laws of physics by comparison. This is what Jerry Coyne said. He was the author of Why Evolution is True. He said, in science's pecking order, evolutionary biology lurks somewhere near the bottom, far closer to the pseudoscience of phrenology than to physics. My line of argumentation here is it's been claimed that natural selection has built out the complexity, the complexity of life. And it turns out, um, and Dawkins wrote this book, The Blind Watchmaker, but that has been falsified on so many levels, uh, especially recently in light of theoretical studies and experimental evidence. And um, the second line is the lack of common ancestry in major protein architectures. And there's a quote from Aaron Ra. I kind of schooled him on that, and now he's repeating what I taught him. So I worked for Don, uh, Dr. John Sanford. He was a geneticist, an atheist turned Christian, turned creationist. And um, he published a peer-reviewed article in the journal Mathematical Biology that destroyed Fisher's fundamental theorem of natural selection. Dawkins was just uh, gushing over that, but it turned out to be false. I'm happy to report that um, I joined um, John Sanford and William Basner. We published in Springer Nature. Uh, reference work that is now on university shelves. We passed peer review, amazingly. And um, the book, by the way, is for $1,500. Uh, you can get it for 18, $819 at Walmart. But 
I don't get a dime if you buy it. So as, as well-meaning as you are, I suggest you buy size book instead. Um, so what is the problem with natural selection? I'm just going to give you some, uh, these are re relatively recent headlines, evolution by gene loss. And it says here, uh, many examples support the idea that gene loss can be an adaptive evolutionary force. Um, and there's one, selection-driven gene loss in bacteria. And then this one, genome reduction. Genome reduction is loss of genes. It's the dominant mode of evolution. And uh, this one in Lenski's experiments, uh, genomes decay despite sustained fitness gains. This is showing that natural selection does not work as advertised. Um, we have books like uh, Survival of the Sickest. There's also this forgotten work by Ario and Lewinton that talk about the confusions of fitness. It shows it's an empty concept. Uh, also, evolution does not proceed the way Dawkins envisioned. This is proven uh, by work by Scott Minnick. I interviewed him on my channel. It couldn't even resolve five measly nucleotides out of a million. So how's it gonna build the genome? Natural selection did not work as advertised even after 80,000 generations. It could not even reconstruct a slightly damaged gene. And why is this? This is like a hiker who um, kind of is walking along and trying to hike and he decides to just dump his equipment, um, you know, his food, his provisions, his winter gear, so he can move faster. And that's why evolution, by way of analogy, why it loses genes. That's how selection works. It only, it's short-sighted, only works, it focuses only on the immediate. Um, maybe in the discussion we can cover why proteins do not have a common ancestor, but briefly, let me just show you two different proteins. On the left is collagen, on the right is zinc finger. You could see there, uh, for those of you who can read amino acids of proteins, that there's no way that this has a common ancestor. It also shows the difficulty then of evolving one protein to another if you're gonna make a major change to something that's non-homologous. So if it doesn't have a common ancestor, they just sort of popped out of there, especially ones that are extremely complex. Um, and we can go into this in the discussion. So what's, the, you know, I wanted to point out that I did a um, paper published also in Oxford University Press that talks about the similarity, the reason for it. Life is optimized for scientific discovery. That's why we have patterns of similarity and nested hierarchies. I look forward to discussing uh, this more and I yield my uh, time to Jen. Thank you. Thanks, Sal, Justin, and my opponents, Dr. Sai and Amy, as well as all the audience for being here this evening. I will share my presentation. Welcome to the evolution debate. Happy to be here. I'm Jen Sharp. For those of you who don't know me, I have an honors degree in physics math from the University of Ottawa. I worked as a tutor for science, language, and math for a great number of years, and then worked in audio video comparison analysis, specifically uh, large language models for, or the precursors to large language models for automatic uh, speaker recognition. I also worked as a captionist for deaf and hearing impaired students. Now I mostly 
get into debates on the internet uh, when I'm not teaching about physics and non-dualist philosophy. So overview of my presentation, I'll give an introduction to me, which I've already done. And then I'll follow it up with some uh, critiques of evolution. How it's almost always a modern Bailey fallacy when we're presented with uh, arguments uh, as to uh, when we're told what we should believe about how uh, phenotypic uh, speciation has happened in history. We've got uh, unjustified presuppositions abounding those models and uh, evidence against, I'm also going to mention some evidence against uh, current evolutionary trees. And then if I have time, I'm going to get into an alternate model that gives you all the, it explains all the data plus gives a lot more insight and predictions. So just uh, to make sure, how much time do I have left? Four and a half minutes, great. So what's Mott and Bailey? That's when you have something sane sounding, but then all these, uh, you know, trappings that you try to sweep in under the door. So the Mott is organisms change over time. Yeah, I don't know that anyone would disagree with that, but then we have other assertions like gen genes determine behavior, genetic change is incremental, DNA comes from RNA, and bottom-up biomechanics where we're expected to believe that uh, my ancestor is a single-celled organism. So evolution change inheritable characteristics of biological populations over successive generations. That's unfalsifiable because it, we can demonstrate it with brassica turning into broccoli, for example. So the question is, is that change actually responsible for phenotypic variability? Okay, so let's, before we get into that, have a look at all the presuppositions clogging this assertion. One, matter in particular, genetic matter drives evolutionary change. Two, evolutionary changes are incremental. Three, organisms with similar phenotypes have a common ancestor. Four, evolution isn't toward or away from anything. We have a lot of causes for skepticism. We have a lot of evidence for punctuated equilibrium, which suggests that changes are actually not gradual, but fast. Uh, no evidence for non-DNA-based life, even though they've tried to replicate RNA-based life, and it just reverted to DNA-based life because there's something in those four, hint four is an important number, base pairs that constrains life to itself. We don't have a model for abiogenesis. abiogenesis. We can't even verify the domain of this model. My biggest issue is how does the brain come about from a non-brain organ? I am expected to take this on what amounts to faith. No model essentially for anything. Not even something as simple as the spiral shape of an operculum. Now, if I was going to validate a model, at least the very least, I would want it to validate something as obvious as, or simple rather, as this shape. Can't do it, just ends up being an explanation of tree drawings as my debate partner has said in the past. According to the Procure model, there's a last universal common ancestor, which disperses into multiple similar forms across disparate geographic locations. However, evidence casts doubt on this view, and this is material evidence. How does, evid how does evolution actually work? Uh, real quick, how much time do I have left? Oh, dang. I wish I had more. Anyway, I have my alternate model of evolution, but just to skip ahead, we want to look at two examples, which is the anglerfish and the human. So the anglerfish is at the end of the intelligence 
spectrum, but it has a lot of consciousness because it has all that light in its head. So the darkness of the cave is the determining factor for the anglerfish. And according to Lichitelli's principle, all these determining factors are minimized through motion, thermodynamic motion. So that's where we start off, low consciousness. And these organisms create an energy differential, an excess of available energy, e.g. that light. That's just a metaphor. So the light in the anglerfish is a metaphor for all the energy stored up in these low intelligence organisms. And then you get predation to move, push back against this differential. And predation selects for intelligence because it's a competitive activity. And this intelligence then becomes another determining factor. The species will, oh, thanks. Species will spontaneously cluster into niches based on intelligence. And then you get colonization based on these determining factors of intelligence. And then the intelligence starts to determine itself because it is its own competitive factor to varying degrees. I have an alternate model of evolution where everything descends from a single form and the degree of evolution is just the degree of deviation from this form. So if we want to get into it, we can. I'll just wrap it up. I won't read everything on the slide, but uh, I'll just say real quick, at least my model can account for the spiral motion that you see in my little example from earlier. If I can pull it up, the operculum. So thanks so much for listening. Sorry, that was a little rushed. Uh, I'll kick it over to the other side to hear the rebuttal. Thank you so much for your attention. All right, thank you very much, Jen. No, that was well done. Um, before we get on to the other side, oh, the names got moved around here somehow. That's not cool. Uh, who's going first, Cy or Amy? on the other side. Hey, it looks like- I'm looks good like with either one. Yeah. Okay. So I'm not gonna rearrange the names yet because I'll probably just get messed up with the next screen share. Um, but in the meantime, you guys can enjoy your uh, new identities for 15 seconds while I tell everybody to hit that like and subscribe button for us. And uh, go ahead and start getting those super chats in. I'm already jotting them down. And at the end, we will start asking our debaters some questions. Um, so, Sty, go ahead. The floor is all yours. Okay. Um, I'm going to, well, I guess I'm supposed to introduce myself. I'm just going to take a second for that. Uh, I'm a PhD in biochemistry, and uh, despite what Sal said, I, I don't think I can take much credit for uh, his success. Uh, but anyway, I appreciate his uh, comments and uh, his plugging of my book. That's great. Um, I think it might be worthwhile saying that uh, in the two opening talks that I heard from the other side, uh, there were only a few things that I disagreed with, which may be very shocking. <laughs> and uh, it might be upsetting for people who want, who are hoping to find a really, you know, deep down and dirty debate. I think this is going to end up being more of a discussion, which is what I like anyway, and which is what I usually try to do with debates, if possible. Uh, let me just start by saying, you know, we have to define what evolution is, and there are many definitions, and some of them are 
variations of this one, which is the actual accepted scientific definition of evolution. And that is a change in allele frequencies in a population over time. And this change is driven by what we call fitness uh, for alternative alleles, which we call P and Q. And there's even an equation that can describe this. Sal showed another equation, which is very similar to this one. It, one comes from the other. But my point of showing this is that this is, this is very different. This definition is very different from what lots of people think that evolution is. And so really what's important to know here is what evolution is not. And I have lots of slides showing what evolution is not. I'm going to skip those and only talk about one in particular. And this is really an important one. Evolution is not about the origin of life. In fact, there are no actual scientists doing evolutionary work who talk about the evolution, uh, sorry, talk about the origin of life. Origin of life is a separate field, both in science and in philosophy and, and even in religion. But it is not connected to evolution. Darwin didn't connect it. Dawkins doesn't connect it. Uh, no, no actual evolutionary biologist discusses origin of life in the context of evolutionary theory. Uh, in fact, uh, oh, yeah, there it is. Okay. Um, what When we talk about evolution, we don't start at the beginning, which is the origin of life, at the first cell, for example. There's something that happened between whenever there was some kind of a cell and a cell which is very complex already and that we call the last universal common ancestor, evolutionary theory, as Sal mentioned, does propose that this LUCA gives birth to everything else eventually with a great deal of time. But what came before LUCA is not subject for inquiry to evolution. And the reason is that you need uh, evolution to get some of the prospect, some of the, I'm sorry, you cannot use evolution to get some of the mechanisms in this cell because uh, you need those mechanisms for evolution to work. And that includes replication, the DNA, genetic code, many other things. So since you need those things for evolution to work, you can't invoke evolution to get here. What evolution does do is describes a theory by which you get all the rest of life. And I tend to also make a red line here between the rest of life and humans because, and this is a matter of faith, not a matter of science. I believe that humans are partially a product of evolution, but partially something much more. Now I wanna show this phylogenetic tree because it's, it's very important. It shows cats, different kinds of cats uh, evolving into uh, different species of cats, such as small cats, which include the you know house cats and panthers and lions and tigers and all the all the kinds of cats that we know of. The important part about this slide is it came from Answers in Genesis, the one of the leading creationist organizations in the US. And what what they say is that not every created kind of cat made it to the ark, made it past the flood. The ones that did survive then evolved through natural selection, actually, 
into the various species we see today. Now, it's it's not exactly the same evolutionary principle that evolutionists and uh, biologists use. There are some big differences. Sal mentioned uh, loss of genetic material. That's stressed mostly in this theory. But the point that I'm making is that everybody agrees that evolution occurs through natural selection at some point. And what the difference is, is that when creationists talk about a kind, they're starting at the level of the family. And families then give rise to genus, and genus gives rise to species. Species would be, for example, uh, 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 the lion or the tiger or the cat. Genus is a group of those. But if you accept this pathway, all, the only difference between that and what biologists talk about is that there are other groups that go further back until you have all animals, for example, the kingdom of animals, which then give rise to phyla, classes, orders, and then families. So again, the difference is, I, I believe the difference is fairly minor. So one of the big arguments that's <clears throat> always made is that many people, and I, I would like to ask uh, uh, Sal and Jen if they would agree with this, that microevolution has not been uh, controversial at all, that creationists agree that microevolution, which is the adap adaptation of the fittest alleles by mutation, uh, is something that is acceptable. Now, what, okay. So I'll just leave that on and stop. Thank you so much, Sal. Um, Amy, it's your turn. You got a screen share as well, or are you just going for it? I do not. And I'm right. just going to, I am a little bit spicier. However, I do want to just say that it is, been lovely just seeing uh, in the pre-debate, just meeting for the second time the doctor. And I know Sal and Jen very well, and they are both lovely individuals. With that being said, <laughs> hello, my name is Amy Newman. I am a professor of information systems, a teacher, a counter-apologist, and a comedian paid by the word. I also do fun, skeptic-based fun content with my co-host James W at youtube.com slash Amy Newman. Evolution on trial, though not on trial in the scientific community. Evolution is the backbone of modern biology and has been for a hundred plus years now. Though let's not get ahead of ourselves. What does evolution even mean? Simply put, that populations of genes have random mutations and that the environment naturally selects for them. These two facts are what make up the theory of evolution. And I mean both of those words because I often hear the phrase, that's just a theory, which, if true, would make the sentence, that's just the theory of gravity seem valid. A theory is a framework of facts that explain a phenomena, like gravity, evolution, or the germ theory of disease. In fact, evolution has come a long way since Darwin first wrote Origin of Species, 
what began with Charles comparing different species of finches has become a massive collection where we now have millions upon millions of fossils within the fossil record. And within these geological columns, we find species being more complex at the top and slowly becoming simpler the further we dig, which is what we would expect to find from evolving organisms. We also have the genetic record. We understand how genes allow us to mix and match with members of our species so that we can create new combinations, new humans. Our utilization of genetics also enables us to do the same thing with pea pods, corn, and other organisms that have a fast turnover time, allowing us to make crops like never before, like the banana, but we have artificially changed so that it is friendlier to our taste buds. Okay, but that's artificial. So how do genes randomly mutating drive change? We can think of this by thinking of two different butterflies. Each one has a random mutation, one for blue, one for green. None of them pick their color, but the green butterflies, as they land on the green leaves, fade into the background, and the blue butterflies almost become target practice for birds. One by one, the blue butterflies in this forest disappear but the green butterflies are all that is left. This is evolution in action, natural selection in action. So then we have to ask, evolution on trial? If evolution is a scientific fact, then where is this trial exactly taking place? And that would be the hall of religion. With the correlation being that the more fundamentalist a person is, the less of a chance that they will accept evolution as the answer for the diversity of life. To the point where fundamentalists have failed to get creationism taught in public schools twice, at least in the United States. Though there is hope, because alternatively, many religious people find ways to make their religion and science work. They're fine with a 4.5 billion year old earth with humans evolving over 100,000 years ago. Heck, we have tools of other hominids using, using these older than 100,000 years. Thus, the religious people that can make these two coincide, they're the ones on my side. It's only the people who seem to doubt long periods of time that struggle to accept evolution <laughs> and even evolution. Ask them yourselves, do you believe in evolution? If they say no, ask them, do you believe in microevolution? And you'll surprisingly often hear them say, yes. Thus, they do accept some evolution. Diet Coke is still Coke. Time is not magic, it's part of life. In cosmology, stars also take longer periods of time than our own to form, yet we know how they do. Finally, my joke is that many of the detractors of evolution seem to be expecting what I call Pokemon evolution. They're waiting for a smaller animal 
to begin glowing. And after a few minutes of postulating, they grow dramatically in size to an entirely different organism right before our eyes. But this is not how evolution works, which is slow. Gradually, through each successive and successful generation, each organism sharing a common ancestry that we call the tree of life. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Amy. Uh, so we're about to enter into the uh, back and forth discussion. Before we do that, once again, I want to remind everybody to uh, hit that subscribe button. Modern Day Debate sitting at a healthy 158,000 subscribers, uh, over 30,000 of those uh, very recently, actually. So thank you already for all the support uh, you guys uh, give us. But right now we've got almost, we're just knocking on 300 live viewers and only 30 likes. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm pleading with you, please just, just a couple more, um, Amy, let me ask you, did you hit the like button yet? I am doing so right now. I uh, knew one of you oh. was missing. All right. So we're going to go into our 50 minute discussion. Uh, I'll be sitting here quietly listening carefully. Uh, hopefully you guys can avoid any dog piles, um, or insults, which is pretty much, I'm sure that's not going to happen. Uh, so the floor belongs to all four of you. Have fun. S someone needs to, to go first. Um, I, <clears throat> I might, can I do that and maybe share my screen a little and show a couple more slides? Is that all right? Um, I don't have any yes, objections. Yes. Okay, no objection. Then I will take that as a yes. All right. Um, oh, wait. Okay. So I was here. I'm going to skip all this. Um, the thing, I, I think, I think what is important to say here is that uh, when we were talking about what evolution is, we often neglect the fact that evolution, the theory of evolution, is has been changing drastically over time and that's normal in any science until one gets to the point where we have a, a set of mathematical laws which really kind of as as uh as sal showed in his first slide when physics came up with those laws that was a, a place where we could start from and and hang our hat on evolution doesn't have that yet and it's not a complete theory but people in the field are working on completing it. And there have been huge numbers of things that have come out in evolution in recent years that most people don't talk about because many people don't know about them. So for example, symbiogenesis is a mechanism of evolution where one cell grabs another one like a mitochondria and that, that happens very quickly. It doesn't follow the normal Darwinian slow change. There are transposon insertions. The third one is fascinating because it's only come out in the last couple of years. Cognition-based evolution, which is exactly as wild as it sounds. In other words, there's now a theory 
that many creatures, including bacteria and other animals, actually have cognition, not just humans and, anim and large animals. And they actually can make some decisions about how they're going to evolve. I know that sounds insane, but it is actually science. And that takes away the idea that all changes is random. We used to think that, but there's now a lot of evidence about non-random mutations. Horizontal gene transfer, whole genome duplication, uh, and I said non-random, th these are other, these are other um, mechanisms. There's something called the extended evolutionary synthesis. I won't go down the, the list here, but all kinds of new uh, mechanisms are being proposed for how evolution works. And uh, there, since, Darwin, since the, the neo-Darwinian uh, synthesis was the main area of, or the main theory of evolution uh, decades ago, we now have neutral theory, we have punctuated equilibrium, we have convergence showing that evolution has a direction because many different lines of evolution end up with the same solutions. Niche selection where evolution goes back and forth with the environment. Epigenetics is a huge field. And finally, at the bottom, something I'm very interested in is the role of teleology and agency along with cognition and evolution. And teleology and agency were originally excluded from any concept in biology. It was considered to be non-scientific. You don't have purpose that doesn't occur in other sciences, but in biology, it's clearly there. Now, I should say that some of this might sound as if it's, uh, it's, it's kind of, um, you know, reflective of what Amy was saying about religion. Uh, but most of this work is being done by non-theists because what has happened in evolutionary biology is that we've come across a lot of obstacles which you can't get past using just chemistry and physics. And so we need new ideas. We need new concepts of how to think about how biology works and how evolution works. And here are some of the questions that have give, we have gotten some answers to. Now, some of these are controversial, but there's peer-reviewed published literature, again, mostly from non-theists, that give these answers. So the production of genetic variation is not always totally random. Sometimes it's not random. There's actually a purpose to the, to the, to the mutation. Are all possible evolutionary pathways uh, possible? In other words, can, if, as Stephen Gould said, if we wind back the clock, will we get a totally different result? No, Simon Conway Morris has shown that. There is a convergent evolution, there's convergence which shows that evolution follows specific pathways and directions. And that means there is a direction for evolution. Teleology is not ruled out. There can be purposes in evolution and cells can help determine their own evolutionary path. The last question, does God intervene in the evolutionary process? I don't have an answer because we're not discussing that today, but that is another question that can come up. So I wanted to mention that, oh, uh, this is the book that Sal mentioned, and I have a new book coming out in about two months called Science and Faith and Harmony. But again, uh, that's just for promotion. It's not to do anything with the, uh, the topic at hand. So I wanted to show all that because a lot of what I showed answers some of the points that both Cal and Jen have made. And that is sometimes people who argue against evolution 
are arguing against the evolution of your grandfather or your father or, you know, maybe your uncle's or slightly older brother. <laughs> I mean, it's not the current necessarily always the current uh, evolutionary ideas. Is there a consensus yet? No. We still have Jerry Coyne and Richard Dawkins who are stuck on the neo-Darwinian synthesis, but they are becoming in the minority. And some of these ex uh, new ideas are extremely exciting scientifically, biologically, and I think evolutionary theory is in an incredibly exciting place right now. We don't know where it's going to end up, but I, I wanted to say that for the purpose of discussion. And I'll stop. Thank you, Sai. I was wondering if I, uh, unless Amy or Jen have any uh, objections, I, I'd like to finish some thoughts that I laid out in my opening statement. Um, thank you. So, uh, well, if we're all going to have the extra time for opening statements, like, uh, like you know, it's we an open discussion. the open discussion. As far as I'm concerned, you guys should be discussing. Yeah, I mean, it's not much of a discussion just to have a monologue and that there was no question in there. So there's nothing to respond to. So I'd rather have it be an actual debate. Well, I do have I do have something to object to. Um, first off, uh, evolutionary biology is not the backbone of biology. Um, in my I showed some of these peer reviewed papers. They're senior biologists. They're creationists. So you don't need it. However, you can't do even neuroscience biology without electromagnetism. So we talk about what theories are dispensable. You're not going to be able to dispense with the laws of physics, which I will show here. Uh, these are the accepted laws, and these are the ones I had to learn when I was studying um, physics at Johns Hopkins. These are the form of real theories. They're mathematical. They've been proven experimentally. Um, Sai, I, I totally respect his desire to see the mathematization of evolutionary biology, but I I don't think it can be done and it's kind of complicated to explain why, but actually the laws of physics are actually very information poor. Uh, the biology is actually information rich. You could see the laws of physics just stated on a, like almost an index card. These are the these represent five major areas of physics. Most, So much of modern technology just rests on this, can fit on one page. Whereas biology is so rich, it can't be algorithmically compressed. And that's what I think. Um, and we talk about change, it's, well, every everyone's gonna agree that things can change. So, I, I mean, even a creationist, a young earth, young life creationist like, like myself could be said to believe in change but it doesn't, you know, it's the nature of change. I'm saying that experimentally, we're seeing the nature of change being gene loss. That's devastating. There's another problem of what can't evolve in small gradual increments. And this is something I had to school Aaron Raw, and, and it's just so funny. I don't know, he might've had, I don't know what he was smoking or drinking when he wrote me. He said, proteins do not have an effing common ancestor. I was like, well, that's exactly what I was trying to tell you. So this was, a public exchange. And um, I'm going to follow up on that just a little bit for the audience sake. This is, um, we have uh, something called collagen and it's a beauty product. Our bones are made of collagen with uh, that's been calcified. And that's the spelling of the collagen protein there. These are the amino acids in collagen, collagen one. 
And there's a striking pattern. You could see all the G residues, the glycines. Uh, every third, I, I've highlighted in red, and you could see it's a non-random pattern. Likewise, we could do the same for the human zinc finger protein, which is probably involved in as a transcription factor. Uh, it, it's one third the size of a collagen, and it has a very distinctive pattern with the cysteines and histidines. That's where the zinc ion binds. Each of those uh, rows here uh, is a separate zinc finger, and it can interact with the DNA. Um, this has to be this is has to be very carefully architected to work. And uh, there are a variety of higher order patterns in terms of the amino acids, but there's no way that you can gradually evolve one to the other, or uh, hypothetically, what would the common ancestor be where you could incrementally build one? It's just not gonna happen. And I could describe that with several other proteins. And you know, I don't think Aaron Rodley under, understood the, appreciated the difficulty. He was just kind of repeating what I taught him. Um, here are a variety of proteins. You could see the shapes are different. Um, on the left is a zinc, you know, uh, Conceptual rendering of the zinc finger. This is a homohexameric helicase. This is a potassium ion channel. This is a homodynamic topisomerase, a homodynamic insulin receptor, and a heterotrimeric collagen. They're differently shaped. There's no gradual transition. So this would be better represented as a orchard rather than a universal tree. And this is known. Even evolutionary biologists will agree with me. How difficult is it to make a protein that functions? Well, it's just like the parts of a car. Uh, it's the way they're shaped and the way they, they interact. This is from Bruce Albert's uh, uh, baby cell book, which I studied. Um, uh, it's a beautiful book. You could see how two proteins here, when they interact and bind, they have to get their charges aligned. This is not trivial to evolve this. And there's also a geometry problem. How, how do you evolve a nut into a bolt or a bolt into a nut by gradual steps? Or, you know, here's a, a kid's toy, but I could represent this also. It looks very much like, like this, this, this protein in all its domains. Um, so this is why it's very hard to have gradual evolution at the protein family level um, from one major family to another. It just doesn't happen. And um, conceptually, you know, uh, you don't have one part of a car that can evolve into like a, a gas tank, a, a top, you know, a, a wheel, a piston, a spark plug, a radiator, and a battery. It's the same thing at the biological level, um, at the molecular protein level. Uh, although organismally, we might say, hey, you know, uh, for the sake of argument, we could say they all evolved from one uh, common conceptual ancestor, from one organism, but the parts certainly didn't evolve from each other. And so um, that would be my objection to uh, what Amy says, that you can have these little microevolutions building up to, to, to create these big jumps. These, these, these are big jumps that even, I've asked Dr. Dan Stern-Cardinell, I said, do you believe all proteins came from a common ancestor? He said, no. I'm like, don't you see a problem there? Well, and if, if I could just answer that quickly, uh, remember what I said was that we don't talk about the origin of life with evolution. And LUCA already has those protein, different protein families in it. We don't know how that got there, but that's not an argument against evolution. That's an argument against abiogenesis. Um, uh, uh, the uh, collagen protein is late. This is uh, uh, metazoans have collagen. 
that is uh that would be yeah and so so there is a problem of what we call orphan genes and that is an, or taxonomically right. rigid this is this is a serious one and then also for um the zinc finger the eukaryotic zinc fingers is is fairly unique so um you know right now i could i only have a handful of these but i i would expect as we start to explore the orphan gene space it's, it's going to explode um well I mean, but there there is a whole field in new gene development, including orphan genes. So uh, it, it's it's not impossible to get genes that produce totally new proteins, and that's been documented in several cases. Uh, but the the families that you presented were there, we assume, early because then they gave rise to many others. There are new ones as well as you know as life proceeds. But anyway, it's but it's a, a minor point. Can I also just go back to overwhelming consensus in the scientific community among scientists that evolution is, once again, I use the backbone because it is what most, uh, what we use, it is alignment, the same like gravity we use within physics today, evolution is something that we use within biology today. And I, there are creation biologists or biologists that are creationists, but I don't see many alternatives. I know that Jen presented a, it was talking about at least a, a alternative, but I always find it odd because it makes sense using more time, using 4.5 billion years and so I always, it's always confusing to me why they say leaps of time, because the alternative always should be one giant leap. Well, I was, guess was a, a question, question there, is, <laughs> well, my question would be, is there an alternative model that works? I was almost tagging in Jen if she wanted to. Well, talk for, about yeah, I'm just, or... I, I guess just about like, I mean, I just to address what you said about consensus. I mean, is it, I mean, is it justified to appeal to consensus for something being correct? Are we justified to believe evolution is correct because there exists a consensus? I would say no, because historically there have been tons of consensus that, has been wrong. So sure. I would say, if anything, um, consensus is actually evidence against a position being correct. So I don't see the relevance, but again, I think it basically comes down to like, Dr. Sai made all these concessions. So at the end of the day, what is the theory really telling us that we didn't already know? Because the theory is supposed to make verifiable predictions. Like if this model were able to predict any of the things that, uh, Dr. Sai listed had been observed through science. It might have more credence, but it doesn't appear that this model is more than a description. It explains the diversity of life. It explains how different organisms came about. I agree with the doctor. It has nothing to do with abiogenesis. We're dealing with a very specific thing. It, we can argue what was that spark, whether it was supernatural or natural, but it seems to be where life is, evolution occurs. Yeah, I mean, you know, when when uh, when Einstein discovered um, the theory of relativity, that surpassed Newton's 
theories, but it didn't disprove them. In other words, the New Newtonian theory of, uh, of, of gravity is still true. That law still works. But on top of that, we now have a much more sophisticated model, which is general relativity. The same thing is true for what I was talking about in evolution. None of those new ideas, you know, discard the, the basic uh, model of evolutionary activity, which is... But the model is supposed to offer the mechanism by which those effects happen, yes. which it doesn't do. Well, it did. And it the problem with the model was that it was very restrictive because the, the previous model was what's now called neo-Darwinism and the modern synthesis. That model restricted everything to slow random changes in mutations for variation. And that model is not correct. It's nobody believes that's true. No, nobody in the scientific field. Uh, there's been too many exceptions to it. So what's happened is, and, and Sal has a good point, by the way, it, it's very hard to come up with a mathematical algorithm for evolution because it is so complicated. Biology is so complicated that we'll never, I don't think anyone thinks we're ever going to find a simple physics type theory that's going to explain it all. And, and the fact that biology is so complicated means that we have to be expansive. We can't restrict mechanisms to one thing or another. And I think this is, this is the strength of science. Science moves forward by finding new things and by discarding theories which didn't work, which don't explain everything. And that's what's happening in the field of evolution, finally. Now, for a long time, evolution was stuck because people were ideologically bound to the idea of random, pure Darwinian theory that's over. That's gone away. And there's all kinds of amazing discoveries being made in the field, which is, we're not there yet, but it's, it's expanding. Well, they haven't abandoned the basic tenets of the model, which is that's right. the, the genes drive the changes. So Actually, do you think we have uh -huh. good cause to be skeptical of this model, given that it's yes. basically falsified at this point? Well, it's not falsified, but you know, you made some good points, and there are there are many. I mean, Dennis Noble is is a brilliant physiologist in the UK who has been hammering the point that we're not all every organism is not a slave to its genes. There are other ways that cells control themselves besides genetics. So that also sounds like heresy. Uh, and you know, he's had some great debates with Dawkins on this. This has nothing to do with religion, by the way. Okay, this is this is these are science, and yeah, it's it's messy right now. It, and you could say that the original model has been overturned, but only to the point, for example, that general relativity, for example, goes further than than Newtonian uh, theory. But the general idea of natural selection, slow change of populations with time. That's not going anywhere. And as I showed, even creationists agree that that kind of evolutionary change happens. So, you know, it's not much of a, there really isn't that much to debate. That's my bottom line. I don't think it's worth debating evolution because it's not an important issue, either scientifically or culturally. Um. And it's so hard to be confrontational with Cy because I just love the guy to death. <laughs> and so I'm just going to have to kind of pick on something. Um, Go ahead. <laughs> not, not because I, I like doing this, but it, it does also relate to my professional work. 
I, I was hoping you could show that slide where you showed the um, the allele frequency change. This is actually pretty central to the discussion of mechanism. You mean the delta p slide? Yes. 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 So we'll explain it to this is where this is, and I'm gonna uh, anyone who wants this if they want a torturous paper that will really show them the difficulty, I'll mention it. And I, you know, as I said, this is you know, I love science so much. It's actually really hard to make this a debate. <laughs> uh, but let's have a discussion here. So delta p is the change in a particular allele. Right. Um, so you have alleles that are represent represented the frequency by p and another allele by q. So like, let's just say it's red and green. I don't know. Some allele, hypothetically. The uh, Ws represent, um, oh my goodness, now I'm going to embarrass Homozygous you. and heterozygous fitness. Yes, fitness. No, thank you. So fitness here is, um, uh, uh, you could take that down. I want. I just wanted to show that. Okay. Thank you. See, uh, <laughs> I just kind of embarrassed myself there. Professor Gart here set me aright. But one thing that we found out, so if you look at Aereo and Lunatans, I just briefly flashed that slide in my presentation. He talks about fitness confusions. So fitness in the population genetic sense is uh, just the, re the reproductive efficiency. We usually term it in terms of like, okay, you know, how many rabbits does this allele make and, or, you know, you know how, how reproductively abundant, successful is it relative to another allele? And so the problem with that is uh, Lewinton showed all these cases where it starts to become kind of really messy. And I would highly recommend reading that. I'm gonna read a summary by Andreas Wagner that talks about why this is problematic. And it's also one way you can actually show that uh, Fisher's fundamental theorem of natural selection is totally irrelevant. It may be mathematically sound, but it doesn't describe anything of worth. And I'm sorry to say that because I like Fisher. So let me just show this. This is Andreas Wagner commenting. Uh, it's a nice summary of what Lewinton said in his torturous paper. And uh, I'll show I'll show the reference shortly. But it says here, um, first, how can we determine whether a mutation does not affect fitness? Beyond the commonplace that fitness means the ability to survive and reproduce, Fitness is difficult to define properly and nearly impossible to measure rigorously. And I'm going um, to just skip down. Taken together, these difficulties mean that an unassailable measurement of any organism's fitness does not in practice exist. An unassailable measurement of any organism's fitness in, does in practice not exist. This is very difficult for a scientific theory if it cannot define clearly, if it cannot measure. In physics, you have four major quantities. If you can't define it, you could at least measure it. That'd be time, length, charge, and mass. From all that, all the other measurements, all the units of physics are built. It's, you know, it's, I can, I can, I can take, um, like say a mass of one kilogram, other scientists around the world can replicate it and say, hey, yeah, I made the same measurement. The thing that Lewinton found out is fitness is not an inherent property 
of the organism. It's too dependent on the environment. And one thing that really bothered him is density-dependent selection. He said, if I just change the initial density, it changes the fitness numbers, those Ws. And he got to the point, he said, he totally, uh, he, he said, you know, this is a complication of evolutionary theory that he left without resolution. He listed four complications of evolutionary theory, and that was the major one. And this is the one that um, Andreas Bogner is focusing on. So the problem is, this is why you get these very difficult statements where it says, um, genomes decay despite sustained fitness gains. That was Richard Lenski's paper. He made himself the middle author. Maybe he was embarrassed, I don't know. This is very problematic if you have a theory that can't measure its most fundamental quantities or find them. And um, worse yet is when you start losing genes. If you're gonna build an eye, you know, um, Darwin said he, origin of species, chapter six, organs of extreme perfection and complication. It doesn't serve the theory well if it's losing, if most, the majority of our experiments are showing gene loss under extreme selection or even moderate selection or population bottlenecks. This is not, this is not um, positive, uh, encouraging that the theory of natural selection is gonna work as advertised. That's the problem. I'm not saying that natural selection or whatever we call it doesn't, you know, I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but it doesn't work as advertised. That's the fundamental problem. Do you concede that uh, fitness is not well-defined? Either Cy or Amy, whoever. I, I absolutely agree with that. Uh, fitness is, in fact, I published this. Uh, fitness is a tautology. And that means it's defined as the, um, it's it's measured as the, num the, the, the number of individuals with a specific gene that survive and then they have a fitness. So what basically fitness is saying is that the fitness, the fittest people or the fittest organisms, individuals, are those that survive the best, which is the definition. So it, it's it's basically a tautology. But here's one thing about tautologies: they're always true by definition. <laughs> so even though, it, but it's absolutely what 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 Sal said and your question is correct um, that uh, there's no question that the reason we don't have a good mathematical rigorous model for evolution is because we cannot measure independently that parameter of fitness, which is what everything depends on. And that's the reason that the evolutionary theory is incomplete. Now, what do we do about that? Well, it doesn't mean that the process doesn't work. The process is still working. And there is such a thing as fitness. I mean, a bird with a better eyesight is has more fitness. It's going to eat better. It's going to survive better. So that's true. But it but the the lack of ability to define that parameter, I agree, is a major weakness of evolutionary theory. It's why we don't have a mathematical law of evolution. What I show yeah, well, you can't just equate the sensitivity of organs to fitness because sometimes sensitivity is uh, maladaptive. Yeah, exactly. That that's my point. It, it if we could equate it, if we could say a bigger whatever, a bigger muscle means you have you have more fitness, we'd be all set. But we can't say that for exactly the reason you said. 
So we that we're not done. I mean, we we're not at the point where we can consider evolutionary uh, theory to be at the level of other theories that have had mathematical uh, demonstration. But those are always not in biology. Biology is separate. I I, I tend to believe as a bio as a biochemist as a biologist that we have to do something that the physicists did and the chemists did, we have not yet been able to do it, which is to make it clear that biology is its own science with its own very weird rules and ways of operating that go beyond chemistry and physics, and we don't know how to do that yet. Oh, but that doesn't mean I... evolution is false. Evolution still happens. We just don't have the theoretical tools to turn it into a mathematical law. But... I, I would say evolution is about as sound as most other scientific theories we have right yeah. now, about as equal as gravity as something in yeah. physics. There's always things we're learning about gravity. There's always things that we're learning about theories. That's the point of a theory, is that they are these theoretical frameworks that we're always building on. It's just there's nothing special about evolution, I think, that would set it apart from other theories other than it's just foundational and has been accepted for hundreds of years but i just want to push back on things like genetic entropy not very well accepted within the bio, uh, biological community i know that john c sanford that's kind of the thing that he is pushing it has not been accepted you know it could be that our genes are having some sort of entropy that are making it go towards that direction but there's really no favorite towards certain amount of genes or another just the fact that two of ours fuse there's nothing seems to be special on it in fact i'll just keep on being spicy just to go all the way keep on going back something i don't see um well you know what before i bring up more points does anyone want to respond to that because i know that was sad i don't want to tag in oh yeah oh you know i'm gonna I, I worked for Dr. Sanford for seven years. He hired me as an engineer, former aerospace and defense. I said, Dr. Sanford, I have no biology. He said, oh, it's all right. You'll learn it. Um, so first off, uh, could I address one of size points about uh, bi biology? I, I actually think that it's a noble thing to, you know, we tend to believe what we understand can explain and model and I think the or just like the origin of life, I think the origin of major complexities like proteins, major protein families like collagen, or especially the taxonomically restricted genes that came up late, quote unquote, late in evolutionary history. And I say that according to the evolutionary model, people know I'm a young earth creationist. Um, I think they may, you know, can a scientist be at one point and say, I think this is outside the realm of science. Could there be things that we cannot explain with simple equations with experiments and repeatability. I'm I'm way beyond that point for biology. I commend Sai for his desire. It's um, you know, it's what makes a scientist. He wants to understand and comprehend. And I think this could be a domain that is outside our comprehension or outside to reconstruct historically. And that can be very frustrating. So, you know, uh, because I know Sai believes in miracles, he believes in God, but you know, there's that just even I have it. We want to understand and explain. It has nothing to do with, you know, being anti-God. It's just like when we try to understand the world, it's nice that we can comprehend it. We feel comfortable. 
when we start to ascribe it to something we can't explain, it's just not a satisfying feeling. And a scientist does want to explain things that are testable and experiment. But I, I, I'm thinking that this is beyond it. So that's what I, that's one point I wanted to say. I think it's a commend, you know, you wouldn't be a scientist if you didn't want to be able to explain things. If you kept wanting to appeal to the unexplainable for everything, that doesn't work. I compartmentalize that and I say the origin of major protein forms and complexity, I think is going to be one that's outside of science. Um, as far as fitness, there has been a move and it's been in peer-reviewed literature. Uh, David Snoke, who's a distinguished professor of physics, I've had the privilege of interacting with him. He's on my YouTube channel. He subject, instead of Lewontin, Lewontin said, you know, we tend to define fitness as a single uni unitary scalar, which means just like a number. So when you're seeing those Ws in, in the equation Psi presented, those are just a single number. Whereas when we try to say someone's physically fit, what we do we look at? Their blood pressure, their heart rate, their, uh, you know, their blood chemistry, you know, the glucose levels, the cholesterol, et cetera. So when we evaluate most biological systems or engineered systems, we have multiple, multiple criteria. And, and, and David Snow calls us figures of merit. I think when we go away from fitness being a single unitary number, but then now look to figures of merit, we'll see biology more clearly. And that's where the area of biophysics is big on they're seeing all these figures of merit, like the optimization of the eye is, it's not more, there's a beautiful lecture called um, More Perfect Than We Imagined um, by Princeton physicist, biophysicist, William Bialek. You'll start to see kind of the merging of physics and biology and, and kind of the abandoning of reproductive success as a measure of fitness. Um, I just wanted to throw that out. Now, Amy, I am so sorry, but I totally forgot I was going to address something you said. If you could kind of just repeat a little bit. Sure. I'm just taking real quick, pot Amy, shots. Amy, sure. I'm going to pop in real quick just to let everyone know. Um, we're about 15 minutes away from the infamous Super Chat section. So if you've got a question in your mind for our debaters, get your Super Chat in now. Um, I read them in priority order. So uh, first ones, first serve. Uh, on that note, Amy... Carry on. Uh, absolutely. And thank you so much. And again, don't forget to like, follow, subscribe, and send in love to live chat. But yes, I am taking uh, loving pot shots at genetic entropy as a concept because I think that it doesn't seem to matter what our, our uh, number of chromosomes and things like that. It just seems to be whatever works for the environment. Okay, so uh, there, there is human genetic entropy. And I was in a debate with evolutionary biologist, Dr. Dan Stern Cardinal. And I asked in that debate, can you name one prominent geneticist, especially one that studies human heritable diseases? Can you name one that thinks our genome is improving? There's not one. Almost universally, they think that we are losing um, functionality in our genomes. There's going to uh, I could quote Michael Lynch, respected uh, National Academy of Scientists, um, evolutionary biologist, and he's saying he's he thinks our fitness, even using the evolutionary definition, is on the decline. There's going to be loss of intelligence, loss of um, you know mental capacity, uh, more mental illness, increase in autism, 
more heritable diseases. That's partly because our genome is so complex. When you have a complex system, more things can go wrong. You know, like a hammer, there's not a lot that can go wrong with a hammer, but you have an airplane, a lot can go wrong. And a human being is very complicated. There are just more things that can break. And so that's one just for the human. There's there's no one that would disagree with Dr. Sanford that um, the human genome's deteriorating. They just have different arguments as to the reason why, but everyone's agreeing with him. And when he gave his talk at the NIH in 2018, a lot of people were coming up to him and saying, yeah, I'm seeing this in my work. Uh, epidemiologists came up to me and said, yeah, we're seeing more early onset of cancer, uh, juvenile cancer. So the empirical evidence is sadly there. And so this is a relevant topic. This isn't, you know, people are framing this as being a creationist thing, but it's it's going to affect all of us. Now, if I could um, just respond to something please. Amy said, because what you're bringing up, that's sort of a prediction of evolution, because most of the mutations are deleterious. So, you know, if these inferences were actually being made properly, which they aren't, uh, they would agree with you. So Amy mentioned that she doesn't think that there's any essential difference between the physics models and the biology models, but I, I would say that there is a difference because like take something like physics, you're, you've got a picture. So you could say the mass makes the gravity happen. So that's a model where mass causes gravity. We don't have a model like that. We can't say, okay, well, here's carbon. Let's go from carbon to amino acid, to protein, to organs. There's nothing like that. And so biology isn't, I mean, you're kind of right in the sense that it's sci other scientific disciplines make the same errors. So there's no scientific discipline I can point to and say, well, they didn't, they got it right. You know, physics has less room for error, but they still make tons of presuppositional errors in their measurements. But yeah, I'm not sure if that's clear or if you would disagree that biology is more of the way that a, a modern biology understands evolution is more of a description, whereas the physics models are mechanical models that can make predictions that link together two different attributes of physicality, for example, mass and gravity. So they would be considered more verifiable in the sense that you're looking at two different things, whereas we, we don't have that two separate things. We can't go from carbon to amino acids to DNA under your model. The difference isn't between biology and physics. What I'm trying to say is just what a theory is supposed to be doing, which is explaining a phenomenon. So it doesn't matter if it's a physics theory like gravity or it's either of the two biological theories, the theory of evolution or the germ theory of disease. It, we could, it could turn out that these small organisms actually don't get us sick at all. And we were all wrong. And we were just reading the data completely differently. And so it is collecting facts because a theory is still about this collection. But if we're putting in our true facts, then it should be pumping out an explanation for a what of this specific. Okay, well, if, if a theory is describing a phenomenon, then by this definition, a language is a theory. Language mm. describes phenomena. So why isn't language a scientific model? Because for something to be trying... scientific, it's more than just a description. And, and that's where the skepticism is coming in. I'm saying it doesn't rise to more than the level of description, which is on par with a language, which is a, 
epistemically essentially indeterminate. And language is based almost entirely on an agent, whereas in science, we're trying to remove the agent. We're discovering things, and we're saying that even without us, this is what would still be. I understand the premise of science. I'm just saying the materialists aren't doing it properly. I think they are, but I still love you. <laughs> oh, you too. Sally, you want to jump in or side? Did you have a uh, response? Well, I, 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 I'm kind of on the fence between the two of you. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, I agree totally with Amy that evolution uh, is a theory which explains the observational facts that we see. It's important to note that evolution, could, the whole idea of it could be easily overturned by just a few facts uh, in terms of how fossils relate to each other, in terms of the DNA that we, we you know, we look at the structures of, of genes and, and DNA and look at the relationship with each other. If any of that didn't work perfectly, evolution would be dead. And that's never happened. Every, every time we look at fossils, Every time we look at the genetics of two species that are related, we see the evidence in the genes, in the genomes. And um, we, if, if we didn't see that, we'd throw it out. But that's never happened. So Amy's correct that we are definitely uh, talking about a theory which can explain the observed facts. But on the other hand, I also <laughs> hate, I, I hate to do this, but I always do. I also think Jane, uh, Jen has has a valid point that the theory of evolution is is definitely lacking in in many aspects that we tend to associate with scientific theories, and that's because of the nature of biology. It's you know it's it's amazing that we have any kind of theory at all, and it, what you have to realize about there were two things that made biology a science. One was the theory of evolution, and the other was Mendelian inheritance. Because actually, what I believe, what makes biology really important, uh, really different from everything else, and what makes life so unusual in the world, in the universe, is inheritance. It's the ability of living organisms to self-replicate, which nothing else does in the universe. And it's also the foundation of evolution because you don't have evolution without accurate self-replication. So in a way, I kind of agree that maybe we're looking at evolution as too basic a theory. Maybe we should be looking at something else. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not doing research on this. I can't publish on this, but it's just a feeling that I have. And that's why I, I keep saying that it's kind of silly to argue about it because there's no question that evolution occurs. And as I showed, everybody kind of agrees with that. The question is, how good is the theory? And again, everybody kind of agrees the theory is not very good. It's incomplete. It needs buttressing. It needs mathematics. It needs models. But that's there. We're only talking about, you know, theoretical, the theoretical uh, part of it. We're not talking about the reality the actual factual reality of how evolution leads to diversity, leads to different body plans, leads to different kinds of animals and plants. Could I share my screen briefly? Um, yeah. Si, so uh, yeah, sure. you mentioned that uh, it was about 
replication that made life uh, different. There's kind of a viewpoint now um, in Bruce Alberts, who wrote my cell biology book, he calls life machines and evolutionary biologists, by the way, really hate it when we start to call about machines. And to some extent, even people on the more spiritual side, they don't like reducing living things to machines. But um, this was a 2006 article. It says one third of the engineers at MIT now work on biological problems, according to Graham C. Walker, an MIT biology professor. Uh, yet it can be challenging for um, engineering and biology students to understand each other. So um, where do you get a lot of, where there's a lot of pushback um, is between engineers and evolutionary biologists because engineers look at this as machines of life. And I'm finding that more and more of the biology research teams, uh, that's why I wanted to highlight this, they are not drawing on evolutionary biologists to help them. It's the engineers now because they have from a mindset of design and teleology, which I think you'd be friendly to, Sai. Yes. Um, <laughs> where we look at it, again, you know, in terms of figures of merit and the construction of the parts and how they interact. Now, uh, it's just, you know, one reason evolutionary biologists don't like that is it's like, well, you're kind of describing this as something designed and intelligently designed. And I'm like, well, what's the problem with that? You know? Um, so if you'd like to share your leanings about what I just said, I mean, teleology, I mean, to me, that says this looks intelligently designed. I'll push back on looking intelligently designed. I believe the intelligently designed things come from the only branch that we know of so far um, that has agency, which is animals. And so I would be, there are various natural models of intelligent design. I know they always go into things like aliens and stuff like that. To me, that would, even if so, that would still be pushing the can down the line. It appears to be that when you have organisms that there is this almost grinding down of natural selection and other selection pressures there is sexual selection there are uh, social selection there's artificial selection which um, is demonstrable going hand in hand with how we were able to manipulate genetics and so uh, I think that Sal wasn't saying something wrong a second ago in that there are a lot of exciting new avenues that we should be looking at in biology. But I think that stems from us learning something and that ends up opening two new exciting new buckets for us to look at. And that I think is science. I'd like to ask my partner here, Jen, we are um, have different views about the role of mental universe. Um, but uh, there's a there was an article in, in Nature 2005 that talked about the mental universe. When I showed those equations of physics, one of them was quantum mechanics. One interpretation of quantum mechanics says that there is an ultimate mind. Um, 
others can also interpret it alternatively as like the universe is mind. Um, in any case, to me, there is a designer and the complexity of biology, the engineering we see in biology um, strikes me as being the result of a mind. So I'm just kind of prompting Jen because he's, I wanted to give her a chance to kind of share her views. I'm not sure if I'm going to have enough time to uh, really go into them too much because I think we're wrapping up. Like, I don't know, if, should I fold this into some sort of a wrap-up speech or yeah, go ahead, think, Justin? No, yeah, I'm fine. We're, we're, I don't think we're in any huge rush. Um, things are going really well. So, yeah, take the time. It's fine. Cool, yeah. So to answer your question, just the basic sort of intuition for this is that the future is remembered into the present. So we have memories. And it's that it's the force of that memory that renders the future. And when it when the future is rendered, it becomes the present. So that's true for all beings and like all living and non-living beings, in fact. So we want little more information than that. But that's your basic sort of metaphysical aesthetic, if you will, for understanding my mentalist worldview. And then from there, you proceed to, okay, well, how is the future being remembered into the present? So you take an example that's sort of a comically over-exaggerated example because you want to bring out the contrast that's there, but it's not necessarily visible at all times. So something like the anglerfish is a great example where it has a lot of consciousness and we could tell that because of all the light coming out of the hole, but it's had, but that consciousness doesn't translate into intelligence because the manner in which the intelligence is manifesting is that oh it's actually really convenient to have a light bulb on your head when you live in a super dark area so those would be the bottom feeders so to speak consciously that manifest evolutionarily strictly just out of interference with their environments it was dark light's useful therefore light evolved so that's creates a bunch of animals, and then you can have some more animals or some more species come in and predate these organisms, right? So that creates a different kind of intelligence, which is a competitive intelligence. So notice how these the anglerfish isn't actually under pressure necessarily. It's under more pressure from its environment than from its competitors because you can tell because the way it looks is so influenced by its environment, whereas the predators are more influenced by going to get the food. Now, I'm not saying they're, all predators are preying on anglerfish. The anglerfish is a metaphor for what the lowest level of evolutionary biology is in my worldview. So then you get these predators coming in, and there's going to be another pathway of intelligence, selective intelligence that comes in because there's a competition between predators. So the ones relative to their environment, no, not much predation pressure within themselves. When the predators come in, the predation pressure is coming from the fact that they're feeding themselves from predation. So there's a pressure for those species to become more intelligent for the ends of predation. And then there's more pressure because predation is unstable and we like stability because we like to do colonialism and that's not colonizing other countries. That's just making a little colony. There's another selection, which is for non-competitive intelligence. So, Evolution is basically these three things churning together always at, at all times. But the, the manner to which they extend into materiality evolves over time. So sometimes it will be more intelligence in matter, sometimes less. 
But overall, you can tell what the history of a species is based on how it looks because, for example, the anglerfish. All right, well, it, it has a light. It evolved due to pressure from its environment, whereas we, as humans, all look very similar. And so we can conclude that uh, we evolved due to competitive intellectual pressure between each other. So that sort of gives you an idea of how you might understand things without having to appeal to anything material. So that's why I think the advantage of this worldview is, is that you don't have to appeal to stuff like consensus of people who don't have a model that essentially doesn't make predictions without having to like add some more uh, metaphysical presuppositions. And then when they always have to hear people say, we're still looking, that really does sound like an excuse, like just have faith, you know, two more weeks, we're going to get the answer. Like, I understand that that's part of how, that's how, that is part of the modern understanding of science, the notion of falsifiability. But this is sort of unique to Western worldview. So I would say like, there's no burden on me to accept an incomplete model. If my worldview tells me that, I don't even have to think about a model unless it's complete. And by complete, I mean, start to finish, every single inference is some phenomenon that we can verify exists. So we're a long way from that with regards to evolution. So I'd say that even if you don't agree with me about my metaphysical um, meanderings, skepticism would still be warranted for this model because it, there's no mechanism for a biogenesis. So there's no actual way to trace out the logic to see whether it's true that genes dictate behavior and so forth. So I actually think the ones who place blind faith in evolution are committing a fallacy because there is no model for a biogenesis. Combined with the atheistic movement of modern materialist science has basically led to a, a, a strain of anti-teleology. That goes against the concept of science, which we're not supposed to come into science being anti or pro anything. We're supposed to into science without a presupposition to try to let nature show us what's happening but anyway to conclude uh thanks so much for listening and i hope that this was educational for everyone in the audience and i really appreciate all the other debaters and the hosts for being such good sports thanks again no problem thank you to all of our debaters here today folks Modern Day Debate is up to 158,000 subscribers, a massive, massive number. We want to thank you all for that support. Um, but, you know, we don't want to stop the support there. So let's get some more subscribers, shall we? Um, and we can also get some more likes in there as well while we're at it. We're going to head into our Super Chat section. I'm going to start reading some questions off from our uh, live chat. But if you haven't got your Super Chat in yet and you still want to, there's still time. No problem. Uh, keep your questions respectful. Can you have a concluding remark? You want to have a concluding remark? Um, it's only fair to the others, too. I mean, yeah. Uh, Jen, do you consider what you just did a concluding remark? I'm good to not right. say anything else until the yeah, I, I rambled on. So it's, I'm good it's absolutely wait. fine. I feel the floor was uh pretty dominated and you didn't get to say a whole lot. So I was very happy to let you um, speak. Uh, so, okay, Sal, uh, you may have uh, a few minutes uh, to say some words and then which time I will 
grant the same courtesy uh, to uh, Sai and Amy. I told you I was going to get the Sal Sai thing mixed up. Go ahead, Sal. Um, one reason that evolutionary theory is compelling is the similarity of organisms. It does look like a tree. So, you know, I could, I could tell sometimes people are related and um, we know genetically we can build family trees. And so it does look like there is on some level universal common ancestry. I didn't debate universal common ancestry in this discussion. I used it for the sake of argument that is universal common ancestry at the organismal level. I've definitely disputed it at the protein family level. Um, so if, you know, if we're assuming, you know, if uh, there are Christians out there who believe in evolution, and I, I'm one of those that don't, I believe there's special creation. Why would God make things look like a family tree? I would argue that this tree is optimized for scientific discoverability. When I was studying at the NIH, I was really horrified at the how we use these model organisms. They dissect them and subject them to all sorts of horrible things. But these creatures died in our place, kind of like the uh, sacrifices in the Old Testament times, so that we could be our sins could be atoned for and that we could be healed. It also says Jesus, the Lamb of God, by His stripes we were healed. And so I would say the explanation for why we look similar to chimps and you know, there seems distant similarity to other creatures. It's these things can die in our place so that we can be healed. Also, the patterns at the genetic level, and this was, um, even though it wasn't really the focus of my Oxford University paper, it seems that when you do uh, gene sequences, you can predict protein just by comparing the sequences and running it through this, this mathematic magical uh, direct coupling analysis, you can you can predict 3D folds. That's not, you know, that doesn't look random to me. It looks like God has made every creature special in such a way that they have a piece of the puzzle to help understand human biology. And that's a subject for another discussion. And I'd like to thank everyone, uh, the audience and all the participants today and the hosts. Thank you. All right, thank you. Sai or Amy, do either of you have any final words before we get into our audience questions? Well, um, yeah, I'll just take a couple of minutes because I've been talking a lot. Uh, I, I just want to uh, thank the other debaters. I, I actually agree with a great deal of what everyone has said uh, on both sides of the issue because uh, my main message is that uh, science is, is a wonderful thing to do. It's a wonderful uh, field of study. Um, you know, it, and, and it's also very, very difficult. <laughs> and if there's any, I mean, every, every field thinks its field is the most difficult and the most interesting, but there's no question that biology is the one. <laughs> it is the most interesting because it's us. And it is also the most difficult, again, because it's us and every living creature. So I think what we need to do, despite our religious views and despite our uh, any other views we may have that are ideological, and I really agree with Jen when she talked about that, I, I, that's really important to keep all ideology out of science. But what we all need to do is to commit to understanding whether we believe this world was created or not, uh, how it works. And... If we are religious, as Sal and I are, 
in a particular faith. Uh, that understanding of how the world works will support and be in harmony with our religious faith. I believe that sincerely, and that's where I'll stop. All right, thank you. Amy, do you have anything spicy to add? <laughs> I do, just a very quick uh, wrap up. I want to thank, first of all, I want to thank Justin for moderating and Sai and Sal and Jen, who I knew they were all mentions anyway, and this debate was going to uh, be fun. But I will say my closing. Oh, and there is go there is an after show after the debate, but if you have your own after show, please on feel free to email us as well as shout out to the MDD Discord. Anyway, it's a fact that the theory evolution theory explains the phenomena. Evolution explains the diversity of life. And what I would really like us to do all together, religious or non-religious, because as the doctor is saying, science and sound also saying, we're all science. Science is about going out there and discovering what we have had before. And I want to thank all for having an amazing debate. She's not roboting to me. Is it the, the stream that's roboting? Several commenters reported it. It could be trolled with several people. The only reason I mentioned it is because several people reported it. So I'm not, I'm not actually, I can't hear the stream right now, so I can't check. Well, that is a shame. I'm sending so much love out there. Um, I don't know if I should repeat myself, but I would just, uh, just, I'll say it one more yeah, time. No, just hang, just hang on a sec, Amy. Okay. It might be the stream. It might, because uh, uh, Jen was also a robot, apparently. So just hang on a second. Uh, hello. I'm just going to go ahead and I'll, I'll do some housekeeping here real quick and let everybody know to hit the like and subscribe button. And as I say this, hopefully someone will confirm for me that, uh, um, oh, I sound okay. So it might, be, it might be Zoom. Testing one, two, three. Audience reporting that uh, Amy and I are still <laughs> roboting. How about me? Is this happening to me too, audience? <laughs> Hmm. Okay, let's go into our first super chat then, maybe, uh, and see if it self-correct. I mean, I have no way. Audience is knowing... reporting that it's it's fine. Is it okay? We just had a, a brief second of <laughs> Justin needs RAM donated. So maybe I'm just sick. back up like two minutes, Amy. <laughs> sure. Sure. I'm gonna give the thing I said in the opposite direction. Well. Uh, so, in closing, 
evolution is both a fact and a theory because a fact is a true premise that we're plugging in and a theory is a group of facts a framework that explains a phenomena a theory uh being in question today evolution not in the scientific community so much there's still answers to be uh found however evolution very specifically explains the diversity of life. And so I want to come together with my religious and non-religious brothers and sisters as we work together in science to continue to make discoveries and feed that hunger of curiosity. I am sending love, as I said, to all of our interlocutors and our lovely moderator. There will be an after show on my channel if you're looking for some fun. However, you should all be checking out the MDD Discord, which almost always throws after shows as well, but not before we have an amazing Q&A. So thank you and send in love. I uh, just want to thank the chat for letting us know we were having some difficulties there. Without you, we would have never have known. Um, and now we'll get into some super chats. Um, so we'll start off with our first question. Uh, stupid whore energy slash Biden Harris 2024 for $5 says, could Sal address why some protein folds like Globlin and Rossman suggest common ancestry, contrary to the view that no protein folds have ancestors? Stupid whore. I've been fantasizing about you sending a super chat and me using a uh, you know, my intellect to respond. Uh, I, I have no comment on that, but I will say that uh, regarding, it's not just the folds, you could see this in sequence when we, uh, this is why BLAST and like uh, conserved domain database, you can clearly see that there are, there are islands where there's no, it, it's like, this is why you cannot detect homology. If you you cannot unify all the sequences under one, quote unquote, super homologue. So um, I can't comment on that, but it doesn't overturn anything I said about um, uh, about there's no common ancestor for all proteins. This is, this is acknowledged by so many evolutionary biologists. There's no master sequence from which all proteins came from. And uh, so thank you for, for pointing that out. I always look forward to you uh, you know, uh, grabbing papers that I've never read and and trying to trip me up. But uh, I'll just say that everything that I pointed out still supersedes anything you just said. So thank you. I was so looking forward. It's been like, it's been like since last year since I've seen you. So nice to see you again. All right. Thanks for your answer. Dr. Dino with $2 says for everyone, did dinos have feathers? Are birds dinos? I'll be the very quick to answer. Yes, dinosaurs and birds. A uh, birds are avian dinosaurs. But then, if the, anyone else has a differing agreement, did dinos have feathers? Did dinosaurs have feathers? There seems to be evidence that there were dinosaurs that did have feathers. Might not have been all of them, but there there seemed to be dinosaurs that had feathers. Hey, anyone... I have no idea. No idea if dinosaurs had feathers, and I'm open to the possibility that birds descend from dinosaurs. The gentleman, 
nothing nothing to add it would be just repetitive i'm guessing at that point um t car sends 1999 just to say they're here for church i guess this is their modern day debate is their church um and then just another comment from isaiah diesel five dollars just wants everyone to know um they love amy so i'm sending that love right back to you <laughs> um, all right so now question the sinister porpoise five dollars for sal and jen does p equal np and has either of you seen a mathematical proof that dna is Turing complete I've not seen a mathematical proof for Turing completeness of DNA, but a DNA in eukaryotes uh, is in a chromatin complex. There is a paper out on chromatin computation being Turing complete. So uh, that's the closest that I've seen. Um, P equals MP. I've never, I don't know. I'm sorry. I don't know what that refers to. Well, I think it's a major unsolved problem in theoretical computer science. So uh, I don't know if that's what they're alluding to, but I have no comment as to whether P equals MP. I'm not even sure that that's a, a coherent notion. And then with regards to Turing completeness, it's, it, it's something to do with computational universality. And it means it can be used to simulate any Turing machine. So now I have to turn around and look that up too. So Turing machine is a mathematical model of computation describing an abstract machine. So uh, despite the simplicity, it's capable of implementing any computer algorithm. So is DNA Turing complete? No. There is a, I mean, there's only four components to DNA. So there's, that sort of limits its computational capacity. Okay. Our next question, again, from Doc Dino. Genetic entropy hasn't existed for 4 billion years. From a paleontologist, uh, so that's a statement from them, from a paleontologist, no question mark, period. The question for Sal, could you accept EV? I'm um, assuming they mean thank evolution. Thank you for the super chat. Uh, I don't accept, uh, I don't believe in evolution for the reasons that I stated. Um, I had been an old earth creationist, and I think that's a defensible model. Um, but having worked for Dr. Sanford, I, I began to become a young life creationist because at the radar genome is deteriorating. I don't think humans could have been around for very long, certainly not evolved over 6 million years. Um, we're deteriorating fast. That's sadly a testable hypothesis if we're going to, you know, um, keep losing genes and capability i mean our iqs are going down slowly and we're getting we're not getting healthier there's not a single geneticist that thinks we are and there was actually a paper by kondrashov who was a colleague of my professor at the nih who was an evolutionary biologist kondrashov said uh, you know he asked the rhetorical question why aren't we dead 100 times over so um you know that in the protein evolution problem i just don't believe that a, a naturalistic so you could say, you know, change over time. I'm I'm an evolutionist in that sense, but I'd be kind of like a one that believes in, you know, the miraculous action of God helping us along the way. 
So at least I think for humans, we're very recent and probably miraculous. I believe they are miraculously created. Um, as far as the age of the earth, there have been some interesting things in chemistry with um, the, the, the biotic materials looking very young. Uh, we still have a radiation problem, but I've actually been looking into heavy electron quasi-particles as an alternative explanation for some of the signatures of radiometric dating. So at this point, I probably will never go back to being an evolutionist. Thank you for okay. the super chat. Thank you for the question. <laughs> um, this next one is also for you, Sal. I believe it's a little tongue-in-cheek. I don't think there's any. So from Daft Mantis for $10, Sal... Why would anyone take you seriously when your background is not real? People don't Star Wars. People want reality. Oh, I, you know, uh, I don't know what to say, but I'm glad you <laughs> like. Look, see, there, there's that is an advanced Tie Fighter, and the two up there are the the standard Tie Fighters of the Imperial, you know, the Imperial uh, Imperial whatever they are. And I used to play. Uh, um, X-Wing, oh my goodness, that was my favorite video game, X-Wing versus TIE Fighter. I still have, I have written diaries of like when, you know, I would take, you know, I, I destroyed an Imperial Star Destroyer with my X-Wing fighter. So yeah, maybe people shouldn't take me seriously. Anyone else notice the eyes light up with a passion about a video game that suddenly poured out of him? <laughs> all right, thank you so much. We can um, all agree, Star Wars is awesome. There you go. Um. It's, it's ironic. I was watching that today, and I believe uh, Ryan, the other Modern Day Debate moderator, is uh, watching episode five with his son right now. Um, the next question is for Jen from Dave Gar for $5. He says, the other people on this panel spent five minutes on the problem of quantifying fitness. What's your methodology for qualifying intelligence? For quantifying intelligence. Sorry, these are new words for me. Um, well, I don't know if you want me to go all the way into a methodology for quantification is probably better to just give a definition. So intelligence is uh, inference of a maximum of information from a minimum of data. So whatever your intuitive uh, understanding of intelligence is probably lines up with mine, unless you have some peculiar definition necessitating agency so my definition for intelligence is the substance independent so you could say by this definition something like chat gpt is intelligence because it can it can infer a lot of uh, information from a small amount of data so thanks for the question highly relevant appreciate it all right ben tesh says hey sal can you summarize jen's closing statement I don't think I can. I'm not familiar, but I do have one point uh, that I could summarize it from what I do know. There was, when she talked about the future um, realizing itself in the present or something like that, there was a push for quantum biology because they felt that, um, it's John Joe McFadden, he said, you know, it's amazing all the adaptation because you need foresight. So foresight is very important for making all these adaptations because like you know like i gave the example the kind of the clueless hiker who just keeps dumping all this gear because he doesn't have foresight um there are uh jen has uh 
I think you, I hope you give me permission here. She said she identifies as a panpsychist. Um, a lot, there are, there was one notable panpsychist, Sewell Wright, who was the founder of neo-Darwinism. And then one who didn't identify as a panpsychist, that would be Fred Hoyle. But he's very panpsychic-like, where the universe on the whole is intelligent. And that kind of touched base with Wheeler, who said, you know, uh, retrocausality, the future determines the present, and the future determines the past. The present also determines the present now affects the past. And he had this incredible experiment called uh, double slit um, delayed choice experiment where he proved this through quantum mechanics. So that's about the best I could understand of Jen's um, um, idea. I thought that idea of the future uh, generating the past is very compelling. We have aspects of that in quantum computing um, and my my advisor Johns Hopkins was a comp, uh, quantum computing guy, so there you go. Thank you for the chat and the question, and I hope I represented you halfway well, Jen. Oh yeah, that's that's great. Thanks. All right, uh, this next question from Josh Allen is the next John Elway for five dollars, uh, coming at you hot here, Jen. Jen thinks Jesus was God, but why was he a carpenter? He could have easily just tapped his toes and built anything. Checkmate Christians? Is that for me? Yeah. Uh, I'm not a Christian. Um, I thought it was strange because I didn't recall you declaring so such. I'm, maybe we'll just leave it at that. I'm just reading the super chats. It's, it's, all, it's all good. It's all good. I can't think of anything that wouldn't be horribly rude to say right now, so I won't say anything. All right. Uh, Josh Allen, maybe if you meant that for someone else, I don't know, but there you go. Uh, it might have been a position of, they might have just assumed because generally a, an evolution debate, that would be the religious positions of our of our. Not all uh, evolution deniers are Christian. Um, in fact, Hindus have been denying evolution ever since the, it was introduced to them. There you go. Uh, not all evolution proponents are uh not christians so in other words i'm a christian and i i i uphold evolution and i would say that question is not worth answering by anybody so we'll leave it at that all right well our next super chat is very controversial and it's just for the good doctor here daft mantis five dollars what is the value of growing a beard in this day and age? Do women respond to beards? If I want respect, am I ever better off bearded? Sorry, doctor, you're muted. In your case, no. Uh, <laughs> in my own case, uh, I, I, I don't care about attracting women because I'm very happily married. And uh, I grow. I have the beard because I, I'm very lazy and I hate shaving every day. So that's it. I'm going to push back on you myself right now. Are you suggesting you don't put any effort into attracting your wife anymore? Well, she likes the beard. So Oh, well, there you go. We're so done. then the answer is, yeah, for, for your <laughs> wife. All right. Our last question here. Um, the Sinister Porpoise comes back. Uh, spending another $2 to clarify that P and NP are sets. 
So P can equal NP. I, I appreciate the clarification, but unfortunately, I'm not familiar enough with this uh, problem to answer it. So, um, yeah, maybe you can spell it out in more detail on the server, and I'll, fig I'll answer you once I figure out what it is you're asking exactly. All right. Well, with that, uh, brings us to the last, that was the last question, our last super mm -hmm. chat. So I'm going to thank uh, all four of you for coming, hanging out with me tonight. That was an I'll excellent have, debate. I I decided I'm going to have an after show on my channel just before Amy's after show because I noticed yours isn't starting for a bit. Is that right, Amy? Uh, I may adjust it, but I'll I'll give a little bit of time so that you can be the first because I am I'm up for that. But I, I was going to do a bit of a chat and then maybe pop over and just say hi on your channel later on. If you're doing a, a combo about this debate, I'd love to stop by. Okay. So. That sounds fantastic. Awesome. And so everyone should go check out Jen's channel. And I also just want to put into the record that I am I am both for I'm both against and for beards. Whatever works for you, I am <laughs> just putting that into the record for everybody. Is it possible to share the link? I put it in the chat, but I can't share links in the chat. Um I, I just put it in the yes, Zoom chat. I oh, in the Zoom chat? Sure. Thanks. Sure. Yeah, it's in the Zoom chat, and I would put it in the, the YouTube chat, but I don't think I can. All right. So Share links. I'm going to put that link in the Zoom chat or in the uh, YouTube chat for you right now. Thank you. Um, for anyone who's interested in Jen's After Show, uh, watch for the link under Yahooligan. That's my screen name on the YouTubes, um, and you can go check out Jen's after show, which then Amy's going to do an after show. She's been already actively sharing her link in the chat. Um, and I'm sure she'll share it again. So, uh, with that, uh, thank you so much to the four of you for coming. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I didn't have to break up too many dog piles. That was, that was, that was pretty good. Um, if you guys haven't hit your like button yet, do so now because we're going to uh, close this stream off and everyone's going to head off to after shows. I may even make some rounds to some after shows. Uh, we'll see. We'll see how time goes. Um, thanks everyone for coming and supporting the channel. 158,000 subs. Let's, let's keep it going. The year's not over. Let's do a record year here, shall we? And, uh, wish everyone a, a great night.